Welcome to Story of a Storyteller. I'm your host, Connor Braden. This is the show where I found out all about the ins and outs of the lives of storytellers of all kinds. You can find my free novella, The Stolen Dagger, episode show notes, links to all sorts of amazing books, and more at connorbraden.com slash podcast. Enjoy! Just write down what you want to see. I think that's my biggest advice. But I'm more focused on uniting people. She said to me, I never would have dreamed you are a writer. If the normal or extreme, great. If it doesn't, don't beat yourself up over it. I think anybody can get the words on the page, but a real writer will, uh, will know how to fix it. I always kind of feel poverty and, and, and hunger nipping at my heels. Realizing that I wasn't mad. The one mistake people make when they're submitting things is submitting them too early. And then my brain just went, you're going to write a book. You, you put your, your heart and soul into a book. This is me. Is that you? Welcome to episode 9 of Story of a Storyteller. I can't believe it. It's the penultimate episode of season 1, and a great one that it is too. Today I'm speaking to Christopher Hooley, author of Death, Just Grin and Bear It, as well as one of the co-hosts of the Writing Community Chat Show, alongside Chris Agate, who was the guest all the way back in episode 1. Chris and I chat for a long time, and I was bowled over by just how much he's read, and in a relatively short amount of time, and it just, just proves how a voracious reader he is. There was hardly a moment that we were speaking that his love of reading and literature didn't come across. He also tells the amazing story of what convinced him to start writing in the first place, as well as his own journey to becoming an English teacher. There was so much that Chris and I spoke about that I actually made a separate bonus episode with all of his book recommendations. So, if you're eager to hear that, hold on, and it'll be out sometime in November. Now for the writing report. Seven days later, and I'm 3,000 words further along the road. Goal was 95,000, and I'm now at 89,000. I've officially resigned to the fact that this book is going to be a little bit longer than originally planned. Um... Because even though I'm towards the end with only 6,000 words left, if I was to end at 95,000 words, I will be rushing the ending, which does not a good book make. So the plan is I'm going to do a Stephen King on it. Um, In his book on writing, Stephen King said, your second draft should be your first one minus 10% of the words. So my plan is to finish the story first and then edit like a fiend. And if I end up at 110,000 words, I'm going to have to get rid of 11,000 and it'll be a lot of fun <laughs> but as I said Halloween or bust so hopefully I'll have the story done before then that's enough for me time to hear the smooth Manchester accent of Mr Chris Hooley hello and welcome to the latest episode of story of a storyteller podcast and my guest today is Chris Hooley how are you Chris I'm very good thank you how are you Connor Pretty, pretty good. Uh, really excited because this is my last one to record. <laughs> so, <laughs> well-deserved break. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well-deserved break <laughs> two weeks before I go back to school. Yeah. Um, Chris is looking... author of... Oh, sorry, I was going to say, you're looking forward to going back to school? Oh, sorry. Um, no. <laughs> I'm looking forward <laughs> to getting back and working and teaching the kids on that mm. side. But um, the whole, you know, 
plague aspect hasn't gone away and <laughs> there's not a lot yeah. of protection from our side but uh, mm. this this will release closer to november so it's going to be very interesting to see when i record the intro and outro before and after it to see yeah. the, the difference for sure that'd be interesting we could say like we could do two versions we could go well everything's fine that was quick <laughs> and then we can do a oh it got worse oh back in lockdown yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, as I was saying, Chris is the author of Death, Just Grin and Bear It, and he is also the other Chris from um, the writing community chat show. And of course, Chris Agate was the um, guest in episode one. And for anyone who doesn't know, I was a very recently, like we're recording this on a Monday and it was Friday, I was a guest host um, <laughs> on your show very recently. So I feel like uh, we've done nothing but be on video calls all week <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's nice to bookend the show like obviously you've got the rank community chat show either side of this and then you made an appearance in the middle so it's a nice beginning middle and end in exactly. that sense, which fits perfectly well into your podcast exactly exactly beginning middle and end which of course if anyone is listening this being episode i think nine depending um they're going to be sick of me explaining that <laughs> <laughs> you know um so, Chris, uh, before we talk about you as a writer and a novel and all that, um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about growing up in Manchester. Ooh. <laughs> growing up in Manchester. Um, I suppose it's more appropriate, the phrase would be, being dragged up in Manchester uh, <laughs> by not only my parents, um, but the people and friends around me, because it was one of those areas, which I'm sure you've seen. It's, I mean, I grew up in Blakely, which is on the outskirts of Manchester. Um, I wouldn't say it's the roughest part of the the greater Manchester area, and I wouldn't say it's the nicest part either. Um, you yeah. kind of got a mix of both worlds. Yeah, you could literally, you could get on your bike and five minutes you could be, well, not five minutes, maybe 10 minutes you could be around some million pound houses where a lot of footballers and stuff live. And then, you know, equally the opposite way, you had one of the most deprived um, estates in the whole of, England basically um so yeah real mixed bag um I think probably the main negative I'd say of growing up in Manchester is just how little like books and stuff are appreciated like me now I'm, I'm quite a big reader and I think reading in some ways has sort of transformed my whole life in a lot of ways and in Manchester at the time, like we didn't even have a library. Well, where I lived, because it kept getting robbed and um, kept getting the windows smashed in and all sorts of stuff like that. So they just closed it in the end because you know kids were coming and stealing books and not giving them back. And yeah, it just it had that real negative vibe. And obviously, um, books and reading was seen as quite quite geeky. Like you would never see have seen a younger version of me carrying a book around. Um, not like now when I'm just walking, reading one sometimes. Um, but yeah, it was a interesting place to grow up. And I think it's impacted me as a writer in a good way, um, as well as the negatives that I'm talking about. Yeah. And was that, was it just you in the house? Like, in, I, I mean, in terms of brothers, sisters, that kind of thing? No, we had quite a big, well, I say we had, like they're not still there. They are there. Um, there was four of us, so as well as my uh, mum and dad as well in the house. So I have a brother and two sisters. I was the eldest, or I'm the eldest. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of, it was interesting because I shared a room with my brother until I left home at like 16. 
Mm. Um, obviously, I have my two younger sisters next door. They're quite young in comparison. My 30 now. Uh, my brother is 27. My younger sister is 24. And then my youngest sister is 15. Um, so when I was like 15, nearly 16, obviously I had a one-year-old knocking around. <clears throat> wow. So that was, that was quite interesting. <laughs> Um, at the point of me, obviously, I spent loads of time away, like um, probably from being about 12 years old, I spent every weekend away. I kind of, my house was the house that no one went to. I don't know if you had this in your like friendship groups. Um, not because it was terrible and like, you know, I hate my parents or anything like that. It was just other people's houses were better to go to um, in terms of getting like your alcohol in or um stuff like that and having parties and like disappearing it was really interesting actually because when i was 12 my best friend at the primary school was called richard and he his parents split up so he ended up living with his grandma now his grandma owned a hairdressing shop and there's four levels to this uh, house in a sense so you'd go in and it'd be the shop and the second floor would be huge like uh, living room kitchen bedroom areas then you'd have a third floor which would be another couple of bedrooms but then the fourth floor was like a whole apartment to itself so massive bedrooms and stuff and it had a shower and everything a kitchen up there a little kitchenette so from being about 12 to about 16 we spent all our weekends living in this apartment um so we had girls over all the time we had friends over all the time and his grand never she was in bed by eight o'clock bless her um, she never ventured up the stairs so it was very very interesting um a lot of things gone gone on in that i wouldn't expect to happen until i was at least 20 um but yeah that's the type of upbringing i had in that sense i um i grew up in a very rural area so um my house was also the one that no one ever really went to but that was because <laughs> it was uh, two miles from the town and all uphill uh, <laughs> so very different yeah. reasons but I, but i also get the, the whole thing of you know yours was never the house that people really went to or, or, mm. they, they did occasionally on like a really nice day in july we'd all walk up but then my house became known as the black hole of time because you'd go <laughs> and then it was such a long way away you'd keep putting it on the long finger about leaving the house <laughs> yeah well you get that don't you i think you get one house where you all congregate and it's you know it's the house like it's not because it's you know, a really bad house or anything like that. It's just this, it's a bit more liberal or you can get away with a bit more or yeah, I think it, that's, that's the case in that respect. So, yeah. And do you think like the reason, the reason I asked about, do you have any siblings or anything was I just, I'm interested to see, do you have your brother or sisters has their relationship with reading and being a bookworm? Has that changed as well? Or are they still, very much kind of anti-book i suppose no i mean my brother up until recently he probably probably actively tell you that he hates reading has never read a book in his life he's recently started looking at sort of autobiographies by people that he admires so of like david goggins and you know sports personalities or someone who's really big into like fitness and mental health and stuff like he started recently reading that sort of stuff but he'll tell you himself it takes takes him a good like six months to read a book like he's not a he's not an avid reader at all my sister my oldest sister she read like occasionally she'd read like 
you know the big fictions like twilight stuff like that yeah you know she'd get into that and follow the trend in that respect but again i wouldn't say she was a massive reader um my younger sister she's kind of a bit more inclined to do that but i think that's partly because of she's seen myself and my mum who went to uni when she was my mum went to university a year or two after me so she went really late and um, but i think she saw the benefits of education and reading and because my mum started reading a bit more because of her courses and stuff i think my little sister's kind of adopted it a bit more and she'll read things like anything attached to vampire diaries she'll jump into um anything to do with vampires or anything like that she'll she'll pick up so again she's not an avid reader but she's i think she's enjoying it a lot more than other people in my family have in the past she has a more positive relationship with reading i suppose when she has a an older brother who's an author and a bookworm and you know the the your your mother going to university i'm sure that was a huge influence on her as well because she would have been quite young i'm sure when your mom was in university yeah like she was probably maybe eight or nine roughly when she was going through like the, the years at uni that she was in so she you know she got to see her graduate and all that sort of stuff and i think that was quite powerful for her and and now the message when i was younger um wasn't about reading and doing well in academia it was it was a lot like focus on sports and um like acting because I, I was quite a big character when I was younger I was like pretty bold and brash and I was like you know thinking I was going to be the next Brad Pitt or something <laughs> um, or at the very least on Coronation Street but um, yeah that that sort of like that's the way I was pushed it was always like you know these active things that aren't necessarily get your head down and work it was more what do you enjoy doing what do you like doing um, where I was pushed and you know obviously it was cool to be good at sports yeah in the areas that i lived and you know it was not cool to be reading so therefore i was just as good at sports as i could be um even if i didn't particularly enjoy a sport I'd, you know i'd throw myself into it and that's kind of how it worked but yeah it's quite sad looking back on it now i wish i could just send a little note to the 12 year old me or whatever going this book's great you'll really like it you know because yeah, yeah. you hear those books don't you where people read them when they were younger and they had a special impact on them. Well, that didn't happen for me until I was, you know, probably 20. Before, uh, you know. Why? That's, I find that so interesting because um, we're both teachers. I'm a primary teacher. You're a secondary school teacher. So we kind of, we, we spoke off air um, last Friday about how, you know, I teach them to read and then <laughs> you, you teach mm. them why reading is good and what can, you can get out of reading. So looking back at your own education you said you left home at 16 like from starting um in reception isn't it you call the first class and yeah, yeah from reception up to you leaving school can you see anything that the teachers did in terms of encouraging reading that you now as a teacher would do differently whatever they did i now do the opposite because <laughs> it, it did not work at all i had no interest in in any of the techniques or books or anything that they did um i remember vaguely studying of mice and men and even that like now don't get me wrong when i'm reading it now i can really appreciate it and i really enjoy the book but at the time just complete switch off um and i think it's largely down to the techniques that they try to implement 
um, you know, pressurizing kids to read out loud and all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, a lot of it was teacher led reading as well and not in a nice, like, you know, animated way where they bring the characters to life and stuff like that. It's just mundane and boring and, you know, read this next bit in silence or stuff like that and watch the film 10 times. Yeah. You know, I remember plenty of teachers like that. So especially at the school that I went to, like, I could name a few teachers that I know had whiskey in their drawers and would actively, you know, smoke out the window and have a quick drink before you came in. Um, yeah, it's mad now, isn't it, to think, like, mm. nowadays, if you even had drink the night before, it, it'd mm. be like some, <laughs> some teachers would kind of never even touch anything on a school day. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's weird to think, it's, it's, it's crazy to see how far it's come because, you know, you're not mm. out of school 40 years, like it's only, like what less than less than what 15 years 16 years since yeah 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 like 15 years so, so it's crazy, crazy. Like change. so yeah like i was never into reading at all until i was like like i said about 20 mm. um and i did okay in school but i could have done a lot better like i obviously got my gcse's at the minimum standard of c's and stuff uh, which was a blessing because obviously as a teacher now I'd have had to go back and do them all again Yeah. Um, to get those qualifications. So it was good that I did get them, but I didn't do amazingly well. Um, what? So what brought you to reading then at age 20? Like what, what was mm. it? Can you remember what was the first book you, you read and got sucked into? Because it's that's something I always try to teach because I think the habit of reading for enjoyment is something that mm. usually starts at quite a young age. And the majority of the interviews I've conducted, um, people have like, oh, I was always a reader. So it's just really interesting to see mm. the side of the spectrum. So what was, what was it that brought you to reading then at 20? Yeah. Um, well, when I left school, I left, I left school at 16 and I did various like mundane jobs, like call center work, all this sort of stuff, just bouncing around to different jobs. And then um, I got, like we all got released from one job because the company closed and I was struggling like mad. I was like, I need anything. Mm. So I got a job at McDonald's um, and I was like 17, 18 nearly at the time working in McDonald's. I worked there for three days. Um, thank God. Because <laughs> um, I applied for a job at Odeon Cinema at the same time. Okay. And it was just working in the cinema. And on the third day of working at McDonald's, I just walked out. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. They put me on burgers straight away, and it was nearly Etihad Stadium. Um, so I was, like, cooking these burgers. Um, no experience whatsoever of cooking for thousands of people at a, at a time. And I put three gherkins on one of the Big Macs, and one of the managers was like, no, no, it's just two. Two next time. And I was just like, oh, no. I just walked away, and... I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Cook your burgers yourself. And I left and I didn't have a job. But I thought, I'm not doing that again. So, yeah, luckily, the week later, I started at the Odeon Cinema. And I worked my way up from there from working, just cleaning the screens. So when people came out, it was just a case of cleaning the screens. Then I worked my way to the box office, selling tickets, because that was a big promotion in my eyes. <laughs> um, and then there was a job came up in the projection booth and I had no experience working with a projector before, but I knew I really, really wanted to do it ever since I saw the film fight club. Don't know why that made me want to be a projectionist. <laughs> I definitely wasn't slicing porn into films, but, um, Were yeah, you really, ever tempted? 
<laughs> you know, you couldn't <laughs> go away with that. Um, I wouldn't have known where to get a porn film from on like um, on an actual film reel. Um, but yeah, that may, really made me want to be a projectionist. And because I had no experience whatsoever, I, I caught one of the projectionists one day when he was coming into work. And I said, do you mind if I come up and just watch what you do? And he was a lot older than me. He was probably mid-40s. And he was like, yeah, sure, come up whenever you want. So I literally took him at his word. And I knew the interviews were two weeks from the date where I started going up and watching him. And yeah. I literally went every single night for a good four or five hours after my shift. I just watched him do everything. Just followed him like a shadow, really. Um, and then I got all the experience that I needed. So when I did get the interview, I just smashed the interview. Um, I could lace the projector. I knew everything about the projector. Um, I knew everything about the cleaning process of the films and everything. So they gave me the job and I was, I was well chuffed. Um, I did that for a couple of years and then I got made redundant. And, but I'll go back to your question now. Um, no, this is fine. Read, yeah. My, um, well, I got made redundant. And I'll tell you how that goes in a minute, but my love of reading started when I was reading the books for films that were due to come out. So say for example, I don't know. Any, you know, The Godfather, I know that didn't come out at the same time, but say that was going to come out. Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it was due to come out. I'd pick the book up um, and I'd give it a read. And that's how reading kind of started. And I was kind of enjoying it because um, I was like, oh, yeah, I get to know what this film is about before it even comes out. And, you know, part of my process for that was do I want to be involved in making that film? Because when films came in, you had to make them up. And if you made a film up, the rule was you had to watch it. Um, so um, obviously spending time to make the film up, it could take you a couple of hours to make it and then the two or three hours to watch it. So if you'd done that for like Beverly Hills Chihuahua, for example, which I, I did have to do, <laughs> um, obviously you're wasting five hours of your life on something that you're not actually interested in. So it was good to get these books when they were coming out and, see what the films are all about see if you'd enjoy them um so i was kind of getting a leg up on, on my own on my little team in that way but i read michael connelly's the lincoln lawyer before it was due to come out as a film and i wasn't a big reader at this point i was reading but you know take me a couple of weeks to read a book maybe and i read the lincoln lawyer in about six hours um it was just really page turner it was just like poof, poof, poof. Like he proper sucked me into it and I really, really enjoyed it. And that was the first book I remember reading. Like I'm really going, Ooh, it's a great book. So yeah, that was the first time I was hooked. Um, and I've got all of Michael Connolly's books now and I've read them all. Um, and anything he gets out, I just get straight away. So that love for Michael Connolly's not gone. That's brilliant. And you're really um, affirming something I've been trying to do for years. Whenever I hear a kid's film is coming out, that's based mm -hmm. on a book. If I have a class, I haven't been a class teacher for a number of years now, but if, if I have a class, I always try to shove the book down the throat and be like, this is going to be a film. And if you read this first, you're going to know everything about the film before anybody else does. And I like, mm -hmm. I, I used to pitch yeah. it as a like kind of insider joke type secret club type thing. And uh, for yeah. a lot of kids, it worked. Um, yeah. Fortunately, nine times out of 10, the film would be really bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, then it was great because then it started it sparked this whole conversation with the kids of is the book or the film better and why yeah. um you know so um th that that's that's a brilliant story and i love the fact that film basically brought you 
back to mm. books, if that makes yeah. sense. You know? Yeah, no, it definitely did. And funny um, enough now, I'd rather read than watch a film. I'm the same. Interesting. Yeah. I'm the same. Out of curiosity, what do you think is the best book to film adaption? Ooh, I think Fight Club for me is one of the best book to film. One, because the film's brilliant. And two, because it was one of the only f- books that I watched the film first. And then when I read the book, I didn't hate the book. I actually really liked the book, but for different reasons. Um, so I actually love both versions of Fight Club because uh, they're very different, especially towards the end. Um, so I'd say that for me um, is probably the best book to film adaptation, in my opinion. Just, yeah. just personal favorite. What, what's your favorite? I knew you were going to ask that. And while you were answering, I was panicking. <laughs> I remember any film or book I've ever read or anything. I actually think the it's not a book to film. I'm going to be very, I'm going to be cheeky. I think the recent adaption of um, have you read the Dark Mater- His Dark Materials trilogy? It's oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the TV sh- the BBC show that came out there recently. The, um, yeah, with James McAvoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think that is a, a fantastic adaption, mm. and they just mm. the in, they did the entire book one in season one, and I think mm. it just it was excellently paced because that world and that story, excuse mm. me, so much happens in it that mm. I remember when they did the film a good few years ago. Now the Golden Compass they call the film that mm. film just it just felt way too rushed because they were trying to jam in all the important stuff too much in yeah you know now this is so, so to kind of bring us up then um what made you start to train then as a teacher and not just a teacher but um well actually I, i'm not sure when you're training for a secondary school teacher do you have to pick your subjects early on in the training process or is that something that happens after yeah like what you have to do is you have to pick your like so you do a secondary do like you do a pg i did a pgce so you do your degree first whatever your degree is in and then you pick your subject that you do your pgce in um so what basically what happened when i got made redundant from the cinema oh great we'll go back to that (laughs) yeah i um i thought i'm never being made redundant again i don't really like the feeling of being made redundant um, and not having that control so i thought what's what's a good job to have that's probably quite secure um and it was teaching and then i thought well what do i like doing and i thought well i don't mind reading books now like i've got this kind of passion for it um so maybe i'll do something like that so i did an english degree and then obviously from the english degree i opted to do a pgc in secondary education um, i tried primary a little bit because you have to have experience in both kind of like it helps before you apply to do your PGC. Um, So I did do that. I went to primary school for two weeks, worked there, and then I went to a secondary school for a little bit, worked there, and then opted for the secondary, simply because I thought primary school was great and it was really fun and I'm sure I'd have loved it and a lot of elements. But for me, I was probably thinking enjoyment-wise for the reading that I was, that passion that I developed, I kind of wanted it to do it at, and out like with like elder kids basically i went to try and instill that same passion in them um and obviously there's certain texts that you can't do in a primary school that i'd yeah. <laughs> love to have done um so yeah that's why i opted i think eventually i probably will teach adults just for the same reason like I, i'd love to explore different texts that i won't be allowed to do in secondary school so i think eventually that's probably what i'll try and do do you think there is any kind of 
con- either conscious or unconscious motivation to being a teacher to kind of right the wrong that mm. you experienced of not being given the love of reading that you wanted to get out there and be say to kind of young teenagers, Hey, look, I started only reading at 20 and it's amazing. So start now. Was, was there any of that kind of in your head? Um, I think when I, once I'd been through university and I'd gone through my three years of doing my English degree and how much I enjoyed it, I thought, I feel like everyone from my background should know about this option and have the opportunity to go to university. Um, so I think that's the main reason I get into teaching. It's not necessarily to teach kids about a love for reading. It's about, listen, if if you do well enough you can go to university and then you have options and you can do a lot more than if you don't um because i've seen it with my own you know my own two eyes like my friends who didn't go to university and didn't go into education they're still in the area that i used to live in you know you if i got in the car now and drove there i'd probably see a few of them knocking around you know going to the bookies or going to the pub or whatever um and they you know it's nothing against them like you know, they're probably quite happy in their lives, but I feel like for a lot of people, if you don't have other options, how do you ever know what it could be like? Um, so that was the main reason, I think. But then, yeah, certainly the love of reading. Um, it's hard as well to instill it because obviously everyone's different. Like you could separate people by going, oh, boys are like this and girls are like that, but it's it's not even close to being as simple as that. Like, you know, each individual is going to like something completely different. Um, so sometimes it's hard to get get it through to kids, like what, not get it through, but find what they like. Yeah. Um, it's good when you do because, you know, once you get a kid in your class that picks up a copy of a book and just devours it and then comes back to you and goes, have you got anything else? What I like this. What else do you recommend? Or, um, that's a good feeling. So then, uh, to, to bring us back more to you, uh, as a mm. writer and, a, uh, and as a teacher, I guess now the way this interview is going, mm. um, what then, at what point did you start thinking like you, you've been reading so much and I, I assume you were now teaching at this point, what then made you think, you know what, I'm going to give this a go myself? Yeah, it's it's funny. I wasn't teaching at that point when I started writing. Um, the reason I started writing was so strange, and I've not I've not revealed it or spoke to anyone about it yet. Like I was obviously reading, yeah, exclusive. Um, I was obviously reading quite a lot. Uh, I have been reading for a number of years, and I say my now ex-wife because at the time we'd split up for about six months. And during that six months, um, I found this amazing person that I was like completely besotted by. And really, you know, I spent loads of time with her. Um, and for about three months, it was like really good, like really, you know, amazing sort of like life in a sense. Um, I was really enjoying myself and I felt like she was just one of those people where, you know, everyone in the room sort of like likes her. She had a really nice personality. Everyone got on with her. She was really fun and bubbly. And like when you're around her, you just felt sort of safe and warm, if that makes sense. Um, but she was she was the same age as me. But I, by this point, I had two children with my ex-wife. Um, so And she was just studying in university. She was really clever as well. She was doing like um, a degree in, what's she doing? It's like neuroscience or something. It's definitely something to do with like the brain. And um, so she was really clever, really witty and all this sort of stuff. And everything was great. And she knew about my 
children and my ex-wife and stuff like that. And she was absolutely fine about it. And then she told her parents and her parents went ballistic. They were like, don't ever see him again. Like they were like, you know, you're at uni you're on your last year, you're about to, you know, don't get involved with that. Um, and she told me about that and she was really upset. And I said, you know, how do you feel? And I could tell that she, she didn't want to upset her parents and she didn't necessarily want it to stop, but she, you know, it was a difficult choice for her. So I kind of made that choice for her and I was like, you know, I'll step away. So I think like, that's it. Um, and I remember when it happened, I came out of her apartment and I walked down the road and there's this like uh, liquor store, at the, I say liquor store, all Americanized, but it was a shop um, that sold alcohol. Um, and I went in there and I had like 20 quid on me and I bought a bottle of Jameson's. And if you drink Jameson's or if you ever had, um, you probably need a mixer with it. But I just drank it on the street. I just sat down on the pavement. I just drank it and I drank most of the bottle. And I remember sitting there and I was thinking, I've got two options. You're going to like carry on and just be depressed and you're going to drink all this alcohol and all this sort of stuff. Or, and then my brain just went, you're going to write a book and you're going to be really successful with it. And it's going to be a number one bestseller. Um, And she's going to come running back to you and everything's going to be like, you know, it'd be fine. And like in my head, that was like a plausible thing. I was like, I may never see this person again, but she might turn up in a book signing and she might come with a book and I might sign it and there might be this sort of rekindling thing. So that, it sounds so daft, but in my mind, that was like a thing where I was like, yeah, you can do that. Um, so yeah, that's literally how it started. I thought, I'm going to try. I'm going to try and write this book and I think the few days after that, I wrote the first few pages of Death Just Gonna Bear It. And yeah, just all kind of snowballed from there, really. Brilliant. That's such an amazing story. I've never heard of someone (laughs) writing a book to Mm. such a specific reason. Um, Yeah. That's brilliant. I think it was a coping mechanism, though, obviously. Like, I knew writing a book wasn't going to be easy. And I knew it was going to take a lot of time. And I knew it would probably take up the time that I was sitting there thinking and like wallowing in self-pity. Um, I've heard some writers like write after they've had a, you know, a major event or something like that happen to them. And I felt like that for me, I felt like it was going to go either drinking all the time or write and focus and do this book. So that's, yeah, that's kind of how it happened, but it's not been a number one bestseller yet. <laughs> and there's yes. not been that rekindling. So no, <laughs> <laughs> So, so how long then did it take you from that night outside the office with the bottle of Jamison to clicking publish on the Amazon uh, publishing website? Yeah, it took me seven years from that point, um, partly because obviously after that happened, I decided it as well. Like it, it all interlinks really because I was working in the cinema where she was working as well. And I was a projectionist and they offered me redundancy. And at the time I just thought it was best for a clean slate. Um, Cause they actually said you can either take redundancy or you can move into the digital area of projection that is starting up. So the redundancy that they offered was quite good. Like it was like close to 10 grand. And I thought yeah, I could, I could probably get another job and, you know, take that money and be in work again in a few months. 
Mm. So that's what I did. And then when I took that money, obviously it gave me that clean slate. So I was away from that heartache in a sense that I'd experienced and I needed to find a new career. So I took that money and I went to college because I needed to do my A-level equivalents um, because I hadn't done A-levels because I'd left school and got a job straight away. Um, so I did that for a year. Then I did my four years at uni. Then I did my fifth year of my PGC, which was my teacher training. Then my sixth year, obviously, as an NQT, which is very stressful. Yep. <laughs> and then, Yeah, and then obviously um, the first year of being an RQT. Um, so that's why it took me so long because I was writing it alongside becoming Everything. a teacher yeah doing assignments and you know trying to get my behavior management down and all that sort of stuff so that, that, that's my excuse that's why it took so long that's fair <laughs> um for anyone who isn't a teacher um but i feel like i've had so many people like i have i've had mario who's a teacher and i've had halo who um did do teaching for a while so i feel like everyone knows <laughs> but nqt is a newly qualified teacher um mm. and it is the least fun year uh or or two years depending uh of your teaching career <laughs> yeah <laughs> um that, that's brilliant so so like you were you were writing a book while tri- mm. first of all studying to get into university and then mm. studying at university and then training to be a teacher mm. and then your nqt year so the, the, there was a lot going on um is there any elements of of the book that like uh, apart from writing it during a very busy time of your life, was there anything about writing the book that was very challenging? Um, I think self-doubt is probably the biggest one, especially when you write your first book. Um, you know, I was reading, I, I was reading loads whilst I was doing it. And I was like, is it as good as this? Is it an original idea? Is it worth doing? Like, you know, and I would do a couple of thousand words in a, in a few months and I'd be like, mm, I don't know if I like it anymore. I've got to keep going. Like, how do I navigate this novel in a sense? Because it's so difficult the first time you ever try and take on a novel and be like, you know, what's too descriptive? What's not enough? Like, is this good enough? And I was kind of editing as I went along, which is, I think, the worst mistake anyone can ever make. Um, but, But I think everyone does that when they first start out because they want it to be as perfect as it can be. Um, so I think that was the, one of the biggest challenges, just self-doubt and doubting myself in that respect. Um, and obviously I had quite a young family as well, and I was in a bit of a toxic relationship. Um, so that wasn't helpful. I remember like my writing process when I first started writing that book was wait till everyone else had gone to bed. That's like 11 o'clock. Get a beer or a couple of beers and then start writing. So I was like writing two, three in the morning, um, which obviously your brain's probably not at the <laughs> it's most refreshing after a few beers and um, yeah, trying to get it in. So it was interesting. Like when I finally left my ex-wife and I got back into writing again in a big way, I was in a much more healthy environment and I wrote the whole of the second half of the book in about four months um so i'd gone for seven years like got to this sort of sixty thousand mark and i was just not getting where i wanted to be and then when i sort of freed my mind up from other things i got the rest of the book down quite quickly and when i read the book now like obviously i've read it countless times but the back end of it for me is much much better um 
and I couldn't go and change the beginning too much because it would, I'd sort of laid the foundations and I kind of like, part of me thought, you know what, it's there for a reason and I don't really want to tinker with it too much because, you know, that I, it's weird because I can remember writing certain scenes when I was in certain moments and that adds significance to the book for me um, as well. So, but yeah, I think being in the right headspace was difficult and actually getting the words down because of that self-doubt was probably the two hardest things. Yeah. Um, it's funny when you say you remember being in specific uh, places for certain mm. scenes, I, um, I always have music blaring in my headphones when I write. Um, mm. And I, it's, I have like four or five video games that I basically listen to the entire soundtrack of those particular games. Mm. And I've even have it down there to the point that if it's this kind of scene, I'm going to listen to this game. And if it's that kind of scene, I'll listen to that <laughs> game. Um, I recently finished recording the audiobook version of my novel. And while I was oh, reading nice. it, while I was reading it, I was like, oh yeah, this is the bit from Uncharted 4. <laughs> like I could still hear the music. So for me, mm. it, like for you, it was moments in your life. For me, it was music that I was listening to. Tell us a little bit about the plot of Death, Just Grin and Bear It. Yeah, so like... Obviously, as I said before, I was working in a lot of mundane jobs. And when I originally had the idea for Death to Screen and Bear It, I thought, what if the Grim Reaper was a mundane job like everyone does? And, you know, it was just as difficult as cleaning the cinema or working in customer services. Like, that's kind of the idea that I, I had because I'd worked in call centers where people spoke to you, like, you know, the bo- stuff on the bottom of your shoe. And I kind of thought, well, if you just told somebody that they died, they're probably going to be a bit annoyed. And I liked, when I was reading, I liked these sort of vulnerable characters that were filled with emotion and had their own problems and, you know, their own addictions. And um, originally I was going to write the book from, because I read Chuck Palunknik's Choke, and in that book there is a sex addict and not that I was a sex addict, but I, I liked the idea of someone having an addiction that they couldn't control and that could be as problematic as being a sex addict. Um, especially in terms of relationships, like I love books where they tap into the emotion of relationships. Um, partly because I've been through like (laughs) problematic ones myself, but I, I, I love both ends of not not both ends. I, I I love the idea of being in love and being with someone to that extent and loving someone that much. But I am also fascinated with the how it can go from that to being completely the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, so that's always what I wanted to explore. And then Jack's character started to sort of develop from that. Um, and I thought, obviously, dealing with death every day is going to have a problem. So in the beginning of the book, he, he is in sort of the habit of you know, numerous sexual encounters, just doing that to fill the gap and fill the moment. Um, and he's drinking a lot as well. Um, so the whole plot basically follows Jack um, and he meets, you know, several different people who die. And one of them in particular sends him on a bit of a last request sort of thing. He, he dies and he doesn't want his son to um, come find him in the state that he's in because he dies in a bit of a, problematic way should we say um he doesn't want his son stepping in on that so jack goes to find 
this no, he's called David Ball, the character to find David Ball's son. And it actually he finds his ex girlfriend at a school that the the boy is at. So it's a chance encounter that Jack never wanted you never wanted to see this person ever again. Um but that sets off a spiral of events and when he meets his ex at school, he also meets the receptionist. Um and he falls for the receptionist and their sort of relationship develops. So it kind of follows Jack as he's struggling to deal with the romantic element of his life. So he's looking at both strands, um, one really toxic, one, you know, quite fresh and new and, you know, looking to be quite prosperous. And then it follows him and his problems that he has at work um, and how he tries to deal with them. So that's the idea behind the book. After after you explaining kind of your journey towards starting to write the book, I'm seeing, I can mm. I can see where you're drawing from your own like life experience and paths not taken and all that kind of thing. And I think that's some of the most interesting things about getting to talk to authors mm. is you can see the seeds either of how they came to writing or the seeds of their book that's hidden in their own life, and um, it's 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 absolutely fascinating and it's it's mm. i think it's my favorite part of doing this podcast is getting to see those little <laughs> seeds yeah. as i keep yeah you know? i'd love now to take a bit of a sharp turn here because mm. there's something that you do that seems to be very different to what other authors do when it comes to their presence online mm. um you're impossible to find <laughs> <laughs> so um I'll, I'll explain what i mean um mm. i do quite a in-depth research into my guests before they come on and trawl through websites, look at blog posts and mm. um, listen to previous podcasts they were on. I listened to a, a good few episodes of your own podcast to get mm. to know you a little bit more before this. And, um, you know, you, there's a lot of the times you have your face hidden, either holding mm. up your book cover, which I think is actually quite clever or <laughs> emojis and things like that. So I was just mm. wondering if you could explain your relationship with anonymity and your yeah. Emotion. I mean, obviously, the nature of the job that I do that pays the bills at the moment, yep. that does require a certain level of it. Um, just because, obviously, the nature of my book, it's, it's an adult book, and I put on, you know, online and on Amazon, at 18 plus, and, you know, I wouldn't want that conundrum of, like, Neil Gaiman uh, before appearing in a student library. I wouldn't want my book appearing in a student library and then, you know, kids coming up to me and going, oh, look at this, and Sir wrote this book, and... You know, that probably would happen um, quite quickly, I should imagine, if I was, <laughs> you know, all over the place. And two, like, I, I've been approached to go on a number of podcast shows, um, you know, and I don't necessarily actively seek out doing those things. Like, the reason I came on this show is obviously you've had a lot of people that I've had a lot of interactions with on the show. Uh, and they spoke very highly of you in the show, um, which obviously then for me is a sort of sense of security and go, oh, yeah, I'll give that a go as well. Um, yeah, so I suppose that element is as well, you know, quite reserved in that respect. Like I don't necessarily talk about the book quite a lot because I feel like, you know, I, don't, I mean, I listen to Michael Connolly about his books, but... I don't listen to anybody else about their books. Um, and I don't necessarily know, want, uh, you know, know if people do want to hear what the author has to say. Um, a lot of other authors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
so yeah there's there's that element f- for me as well like i'm i'm thinking do you know do people just want to read the book get into it get into that escape and then get out and you know i think a lot of authors it's it's changed definitely because when i first started reading i very rarely saw an author or knew what an author looked like now like you say it's very much i think an author is part of selling the book mm-hmm. um i may be wrong in that aspect but i think there is a lot in that um and a profile and a personality that's slightly separate to the book i think that is a big draw for a lot of people so yeah i don't know you know just stay just stay staying away from it yeah. funny enough like the i've recently been hired in a new role and they actually they offered me a job and then i got a phone call um a few days later actually from their teacher just telling me that he had one of the governors had read my book um, and they just wanted to talk about the nature of it and stuff. So that was a bit of of a difficult conversation. Um, And that's when I changed my profile picture to having the cover of the book. So I was, because we talked about ways and strategies of not distancing myself from the book, because that was part of my interview. And it was part of the reason why they gave me the role because they're looking at creativity and, so I'm trying to instill that into children, but also due to the nature of what's in the book and the content um, isn't appropriate. So he kind of just suggested maybe ways that it could make it a bit harder for me to be attached to it in that respect. I'd, I'd imagine that's um, a bit frustrating as well because, so yeah, you know, that's why we did that. <laughs> it's, as you mentioned, nowadays being an author is, is a part of the deal is doing podcasts and talking to people about the book and putting yourself out there and all that kind of thing. So is that frustrating that you're the job that you are clearly very passionate about, by the way, um, but the job that's paying the bills is kind of stopping you from pushing the author career further Mm -hmm. forward? Or is that just something you've just... Um, It's interesting because I've kind of... It's not got to the point where it's been a major, major problem yet. Like if I anticipated it and it did become a major issue in the future, then obviously I think I would have a decision to make that, you know, wouldn't necessarily be a fun one to make. I would ever have to make a lot of money quite quickly as an author, or I'd have to kind of stop doing it all, do a pseudonym um, and go under that route. But I've never, I mean, don't get me wrong, I appreciate pseudonyms and I think they do work for a lot of people, but I, I've kind of been one of these people that's like, no, I've worked hard, I want recognition for that book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I don't know, it could be problematic in the future. Cross that bridge when you come to it, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Um, so then it, it, it wasn't very long into lockdown that I saw something <clears throat> trending on Twitter and it was actually the writing community bedtime stories. and that's how Mm. i came to know you uh, and i actually put one up i don't know if you remember um Mm. so so then that kind of was that just before the writing community chat show or was that yeah that uh funny enough chris haggart had got in touch with me about a week or so before that um and he said you know i just read and reviewed his book actually um and then he got in touch with me and said, look, I'm looking at doing a podcast. I've got this girl from America. Um, she's, you know, she's really into doing it as well. She does like various different shows and stuff already. 
Um, I've seen that you've you know reviewed quite a few books within the writing community and looking for someone that's got that bit of knowledge and you know interacts the same way that you do sort of thing. So would you be interested? And I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. Um, and then the writing community bedtime story kind of came a week or so after that because I thought, well, what sort of things am I going to have to do to advertise this and how are we going to sort of lift it off the ground in that sense? And I thought I'm going to have to be a bit more sort of not vocal, but a bit more interactive. Mm. Um, so that bedtime story was something that I just one I, I use that bedtime story idea as a technique with my classes and my students. Like normally when I first start out, I ask them to write a bedtime story um, for the rest of the class. One, because I want to see what sort of technical abilities they're at yeah. and where they're at and their story writing. And I give them free reign, so I don't give them any sort of, um, so I don't say you have to write about this or that. I just say write about anything you want. Um, so that gives me an indication of what their imagination is like as well and what I have to work with. And then it's quite nice because I get them to read them to each other. Um, so that's quite nice. I, I normally get them stood on a chair and try and put some sort of spotlight on them and get get them reading. Um, yeah. And I do that with every year group as well. <laughs> yeah. So that bedtime story idea kind of stemmed from that. I thought, well, you know, it's so successful in the class. Like the kids love it. Um, they love reading their own stories, and you know, they they really well respectful of each other as well. Um, so I don't think kids get the opportunity to do that often enough. Um, even the kids that are into writing, I don't think they read their work out loud to other people and let other people appreciate it. Like it's so nice when you see people go, oh, you write that story. That was really good. Like yeah. I loved the bit when this happened and they came, came in and this person died or whatever. Uh, Cause that normally happens in teenage fiction. <laughs> <Yep>. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that's how it kind of stemmed from it. And I just said to my girlfriend, I said, can you, just hold this camera while I do this bedtime story. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll just read the first chapter. And it was so hard. Like I'd never done anything like that really that I knew I was going to put online. Uh, I think the nurse can show as well. I couldn't read my own book. I was like, uh. um, but I think because it was so genuine um, and that I was genuinely nervous and people could see that. I think that's why people shared it and got involved um, because it is a difficult thing to do. Um, reading you work out loud and knowing it's going to be there forever for someone to find. So yeah, that's how it kind of all started. But yeah, it took off it real quickly okay, yeah. in a real big way. But that's because of the strength of the writing community. Like the people that I've been engaging with, they kind of supported me in that. Like I remember Ross Young, he did the first video after me. Um, and then once he did one, other people got involved and it kind of snowballed from there. Like, you know, like you said, you did a, a video yourself and, you know, pretty much everyone, that, you know, Halo, uh, Mario, Aga, Evan, all these sort of people I can remember and so many more started doing it. And then it's, I kind of wish I would have known it tr would have got so much traction because I'd have planned it better because we didn't put a hashtag in it or anything like that. Like, and then we tried to do it as it was happening yeah. and then people weren't using it and then people were and. I think if, if we'd have planned it from the beginning to be really well, like really efficient, it could have got gone and been like trending and stuff, but oh well. <laughs> well, still, it, it, it's still something that worked and did well and you should be proud of it. Um, so that kind of brings us up now to 
today you you have the book out you have the podcast out um so i'd like to kind of more now talk to talk about the kind of day-to-day of you as a writer the middle of Mm. your author journey so to say so Mm. the first question i've asked pretty much everybody this and i feel (laughs) i feel like i'm going to know the answer with you (laughs) but um because you know you have a young child um you've another on the way you've just moved Mm. house so I'm going to assume the answer is not a lot, but how much time do you have to write? Um, yeah, I do, I do a lot of writing on, like I use my phone quite a bit. Um, and I try, my technique is do a hundred words in the morning and then think about it throughout the day. And then if you can get some done at night, get it done. Um, which kind of does work because those hundred words in the morning, they're like a little seed that then you're thinking about what you wrote in the morning and it grows and develops. And then by the time you come to writing it in the afternoon or evening, like that half an hour or an hour that you spend is much more productive because you've already got a direction of where to go. Um, so that's how I'm writing now and it's working and being productive. Um, so yeah, like I say, hundred words in the morning, it's not a lot. Some days, it'll just be that because I won't get back round to doing it. But then there'll be another hundred words the next day um, and it'll keep growing that way. Um, so yeah, it is becoming more of a habit and I am getting better at it. And my aim long-term is to do a book a year, um, which I think I'll be able to do if I keep up the same sort of pace. Good, good. And uh, what are you writing at the minute? What's your current work in progress? Yeah, the, my current work in progress is it's a book called Kill Her. Um, and I wanted it to be like killer, as in, a, you know, like a serial killer. And then my girlfriend actually gave me the idea of, because the main, not main focus, but um, I suppose it is, is, a, is a, just a single woman. Um, she came up with the idea of Kill Her. So I've picked that as the title and that's what it's called. And I think that's probably what it will be called. But it's a mixture of like you and Dexter, like a perfect balance of the two. Um, I love both of those books and I really wanted to write a character like that. Um, I kind of did it a little bit in depth just going about with the bowler hat man. He was really, like, he was quite fun to write because he was quite sinister. But I wanted someone who had like the beauty of those books, both you and Dexter, is that you feel for the main character. And even though he's doing these horrible, despicable things, you still kind of like him a little bit. And I think that's hard to do. Um, and I think I am succeeding at that at this moment. I mean, obviously, readers will be the, the judge of it, but I think it's going quite well at the moment in terms of it's exactly what I wanted to write and it's exactly that sort of tone. So, Brilliant. Sounds really good. And um, in terms of you say you write on your phone, um, mm. which, by the way, is you're not the first person uh, I've interviewed mm. that writes on their phone. And in fact, one one mm. woman she um, she wrote her entire book on her phone and then wow. uh, emailed it to herself and then edited it on her laptop. Mm. Um, so, other than your phone, then what's your process then in terms of getting it from your phone to a paperback? Like, um, do you use any particular software or tools, or are you just a plain old Microsoft Word kind of guy? Yeah, I'm the plain old Microsoft Word guy. Um, no, I'll just write on my phone and send a quick email over, um, change it into Microsoft Word, 
mess around with the formatting so it's so it's good and it looks like a novel. Um, and then yeah, go from there. Yeah, perfect. Well, I mean, if it ain't broke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. And um, where where do you get your inspiration to write now? Um, I know you said, you know, death just going to bear it seemed to have been a very personal um, genesis. Mm. But what what about what you're writing now? Where's like what's the? Um, I think the idea behind escapism and exploring emotions is never going to go away from my writing. Like I love the idea that somebody is reading it to escape their life and picking up a book because they've had a bad day or picking up their book because they've just had an argument with a partner or picking up, you know, those sorts of things. I love that idea that a book can be escapism for people. Um, and if you go to escapism, you want entertainment and you want, you know, it to be different enough to be like, Oh, this is different. Um, and keep you there. So I think that'll always be the motivation behind it. Um, and yeah, like I think that's how I'll continue to go. I want to write a book that's in a particular genre. I think I want to try and find my genre and then stick in it because Death Just Going About doesn't fall into any one singular genre. It, it kind of falls into quite a few. Um, Kill Her does kind of fall more into a crime novel, but again, obviously because you're following the serial killer in that um, it does have other elements in it. Um, but I'd really like eventually to like it like a romance novel. Um, like One Day by David Nichols was one of my, my favorite books. I remember reading that and thinking, wow, geez, did that actually just happen? Um, and I'm reading one of his books at the minute called Sweet Sorrow. And it's about a guy who's talking about his life basically when he was younger. But the romance in that and the elements and the emotional touch is just so brilliant and i love that emotion in fiction i feel like when you get a character that you can just feel their pain um that's what i try and do as well it's it's amazing to see <sighs> yeah my words aren't coming to me i don't know what i'm saying is it's so interesting to see how much more of a reader people become when they start writing um mm. because uh, it's something i've heard very famous authors even say that you know reading is the most important thing you can do as a writer uh, mm-hmm. and not only that but there's the whole idea of um but you know if people are worried there's too many books out there my book will never be read my book will never no one's ever going to like it it's the kind of a thing mm-hmm. of, yeah but when you start writing your appetite for reading will grow so yeah definitely looking at it like that the more people write the more people will read therefore the more books will need so if you're somebody listening to this who would like to write a book someday and you're having that thought, like go for it. I mean, mm. someone is going to read it and someone is going to love it. And Definitely. I mean, when I'm stuck in the writing phase and I'm like, oh, I don't, don't really know where this is going. I pick up several books and I'll read a few of them before I go back. Um, and then I always go back refreshed and like, oh, they did this in this book. That was really good. Um, so it's great for ideas. When our interview is over this evening and we said our goodbyes and all that kind of stuff and you turn off the laptop, what's the first thing you're going to be doing this evening? Um, I'll probably read some more of that book, to be honest, because <laughs> I had a feeling. I've been re- <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know it sounds like a really bad writer answer, but it's, it's true. Like I've been, I'm 
that's 87 percent of the way through it now on my kindle um which by the way i never thought i would love a kindle as much as i do like i've had them in the past and i've always preferred a paperback or a hardback and this kindle the newest version has just blown my mind like i've actually started believe it or not selling some of my books and getting rid of them um just so i can have them on a kindle um but yeah i've been getting rid of some of the books and getting them on kindle because what they're just so amazing to read off of and yeah like i'll probably just read that to be honest and maybe get some food because my girlfriend's probably moaning at me about food as well. <laughs> that's why she's coming in <laughs> she's like well you're done yet i need to eat mm. um what are your goals then? I mean, obviously, you 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 kind of said this already, but I'll ask it anyway. Mm. You said you'd love to write a romance books sometime, and you want to finish mm. Kill Her. Uh, but what are your kind of big dreams and goals as a writer? Um, I like the idea of ten books. Like, I don't know why. I think Tarantino did the same with movies. That he wanted to do ten movies, and then he was out. Um, so I like the idea of doing that. Um, just because then, if you limit it to ten. And you think, right, well, I really, really need to think about this next one before I jump into it. Um, just because you know you've only got six left or you've only got two left. Um, but then I think it will also give me time to just go back and enjoy like just reading um, and not because, right, I don't, I don't think, I think writing is like teaching. I don't think you could do it forever. Yeah. Some people can. Like Stephen King just seems to be cracking on forever. Um, I think writing keeps him alive at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but I think it it takes up a lot of time. Um, it takes up a lot of your, like, you know, those three hours that you get, you're spending writing. And, you know, I don't hate it, but I think there could become a point where I'm like, there's other things I want to do. Mm. Um, so I like the idea of tan and I'm out. Um, I like that idea. Um, so maybe that, but I think there'd be 10 different, very different books each time. Um, I know I'm going to go back to death to screen and bear it because I have to, because I left it on a cliffhanger, um, for anyone who's not read it. <laughs> so I've definitely got to go back to that. Um, and I'm a big fan of Douglas Adams and his, um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. And he did five books, which are quite small in comparison um, they're not a hundred thousand words each. Um, so maybe three death to screen and bear it books. I have an idea for book two and three, and then I'll tie it up nicely. And then I think the other seven will be standalones, um, in various different genres. Cool. Great. Uh, it's, it, that's a really clear goal. Um, yeah. and it's, it's, I think, I think it's good. I think that's the important thing about having a goal is to have it, have it really clear. And not only that, but to have it achievable, like you're more than capable of writing, 10 books you wrote mm. one you, you should you're well able to write nine more um mm. are there any i goals? just think i just th sorry i just think the idea of like writing a romance then maybe writing a horror it's so good a, as a learner and a reader yeah because I, in order to get to that point where i write a, what i deem to be a good version of a horror or a good romance novel i'll have to read loads of, of those books uh to get to that point so I quite like that, uh, the idea of doing that and learning a new genre and then uh, tackling it and attempting it. No, that, that is a cool idea. And you're right. That is it. That is a, a good aspect of this 10 book dream you have, because then it's a case of you can't like, you can't write, like I I'm trying to write a children's fantasy book at the minute and 
I can't write that without having read children's fantasy, you know, mm. and I'm returning and I'm rereading some of the books I used to read. I read a lot as a kid and it's the same thing. Like I'm going like, Oh yeah. Okay. It, this is applicable. I can <laughs> work this into my book. Um, are there any goals you have that have nothing to do with writing that you'd like to share? Um, See, so my, my goals now as a parent kind of, orientated around my children and their outcomes um like my youngest my two-year-old at the moment he talks about like being a dentist and he's always coming up to you and going open your mouth and he like looks in your mouth and he goes mm, very interesting um so that's quite cute so i'm hoping to like keep plugging at that and maybe get a dentist um career out of him i think that'd be quite good um and then obviously my youngest that's coming in january He'll be a different kettle of fish and he'll have his own aspirations and dreams and stuff like that. So I think it very much runs through them. And I, I think like I read bedtime stories to my youngest at the moment, every night we got a, a ton of books that he reads and I can really see that love of learning and reading, um, like being instilled in him. And I think that is one of my goals in, you know, to try and make sure that he appreciates not reading in particular but learning and just enjoying that process of learning and reading and you know finding what he really really likes and then running with it sort of thing in that respect so yeah that's really cool that's 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 really cool and um just we'll have to make sure that he still likes the dentist after he's had his <laughs> yeah, traumatizing trips to the dentist for sure we'll see how that goes yeah yeah um, <laughs> And then last three questions, very short and sweet, each one. Um, the first is where can people find your book, um, your podcast and all that kind of thing? Yeah, it's mainly just on, well, it's exclusively to Amazon at the moment. Um, so yeah, just type it in Amazon, Death just going to bear it and it should pop up. Um, it's on my Twitter page and my Twitter handle is there. Um, so there's a link to that. And obviously the writing community chat show is also linked there as well and you can find a link to that and we've got our own website for the ranking community chat show we're posh like that so <laughs> you can posh. just type that in yeah <laughs> dot com because uh, <laughs> we went the extra mile to pay for the dot com so or yeah. should i say agate did uh, <laughs> it was definitely worth it um so if you that'd be my advice if you're doing a website in the future maybe try and look at the dot com version because america is much bigger than the uk <laughs> Um, so yeah open yeah. up the audience when i was doing um my website my uh, i'm very lucky in that my boyfriend is an it consultant so mm. he um nice. and I, he really helped me set up the website and everything like that now i built it all myself <laughs> i did it was a very painful process but i did um but when i was like oh dot ie which is ireland i was like dot ie will be fine and he was like nope <laughs> it's dot com or nothing <laughs> um and then my yeah, very good advice. And then my final question, what was the last book you finished? I'm not going to say the last book you read because you seem to read multiple books mm. at the same time. So what was the last book you finished? The last book I finished, I read it in just over an hour and it was Mr. Agate's um, Deep at the Embers of Life. <laughs> of course. So I read that on, when did it come out? I read Friday. it the day it came out. Friday, yeah, I read it on Friday. Um, I actually finished the whole book and then fell asleep. <laughs> afterwards um and then woke up about half an hour before we went live on air um so that was the last one i finished um 
but yeah, like you say, I, I do read it on a regular basis. So some really good books that I've read recently. Um, the other girl, um, by CD major that she came on the show. That was a really good book. Um, I read fair warning by Michael Connolly, uh, Jack McEnvoy, um, tale, which was really good. I read 50, 50 by, um, Steve Kavanagh. If you've not read anything by Steve Kavanagh, um, I don't, are you familiar with Steve Kavanagh, Connor? Oh, no, I've never heard Really good Irish writer as well. Um, should get should get him on the show. We had him on the writing community chat show. He's brilliant. Um, but he's wrote some really good books. He did Thirteen, where the serial killer is on the jury. Um, and his book Fifty Fifty is about two um, sisters, and they both make a nine 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 call at the beginning of the book, and they both claim that the other sister killed their dad. Um, cool. So it's a really interesting concept, and it's one of those books we spoke to him about, and he said like I wrote it. So you were kind of second guessing yourself all the way through because you meant to think, oh, that one killed her. That one killed him. That one killed him. Um, so that's a really good book as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, the the writing community and the people that you've had on, I'm sure people have mentioned this before, but Halo Scott is an amazing writer. Um, she's just incredible. Ross Young with Deadheads, his book is hilarious. Really sort of, I just, I, I, I claimed he was like the next Terry Pratchett. Um, and I still stand by that because he is really hilarious. Um, and a mostly cat as well behind blue eyes. Her book was brilliant. So yeah, there's some really good writers out there. Yeah. And there's loads that I haven't even mentioned. Yeah. But, yeah. That's what I was about to say. There's so many like that you haven't mentioned. Um, so yeah, mm. anyway, once again, thanks so much for doing it. And, uh, I'll uh, see you the next time one of us is on each other's podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely no thanks very much kind of for coming on uh for inviting me on uh it's been an absolute pleasure so there you have it chris was such a great guest and honestly the two of us could have chatted for another two hours after the two hours we did chat <laughs> um be sure to follow chris on twitter um, as eventually he will have the pre-order for his new book Kill Her hopefully out before Christmas so for the final episode I have a really special interview I'll be chatting Jennifer Burke Jenny and I have known each other for around a year or maybe more closer to two years actually now that I think about it um, as we are both members of the second Monday's writers group we talk about how she won a competition live on TV the prize being her three book deal how she mixes writing with her life as a solicitor and the huge impact that being in a writing group can have on a writer. It's a really good interview and it was so fun to get to know somebody I already knew, if that makes sense. You know how you know somebody and you want to ask all these questions and know everything about them? Basically, I got to do that. If you want to hear that interview right now, you can on the Patreon page. Links in the show notes as always. And if not, well then, see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you loved listening to this episode just as much as I loved recording it. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or over on Podchaser. Until then, be good, be brave, and tell stories. See ya. (laughs) 